Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is music licensing expert Michael Elsner. But first of all, there's a new trend in releasing music. Now, of course, what happened a few years ago is we went away from albums strictly to singles. We're seeing the influence of the album and its ability to actually make sales and a big deal in general. It's declining and declining and declining every year. It declines some more. And here's another example of how that's happening. Now, instead of just releasing a single every couple weeks, every month, every six weeks, basically a single on a regular basis, what's happening now is there's just one single with multiple versions. And this is actually happening even on the top of the charts. There's a couple in particular right now. Spot 'em, Get 'em has one, and Lil Nas X with Montero, where every few days it seems like there's a new version that comes out. And believe it or not, they get traction. They get more and more traction. So the whole idea is if people like a song, just keep on giving them more of it in different versions. This keeps it alive for a longer time. Let's face it, one of the big problems that everyone has here is keeping visibility over a period of time. And this is a way to do it. Ideally, you want different versions of the song, but sometimes it's even just snippets of the song that are different. So take a look at this and see if it's something that might fit into your strategy. It may not. It's not for everyone. But if you're looking at the pop charts and you're looking at what's happening there, this is definitely a new trend to consider. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my Music Mixing Primer and 101 Mixing Tricks programs that will help you take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Over the last year, I've been noting about how legendary companies have been acquired by newer companies and bigger companies. And it's a trend also in the business that's happening. One of the reasons why is the fact that, let's face it, many of the founders of some of these companies are getting older and they want to retire. And if they don't want to retire, they just want less responsibility in their plates. Well, the latest version of that is Sequential Circuits was acquired by the Focusrite Group. Dave Smith, the owner of Sequential Circuits and the inventor of the famed Profit 5 synthesizer, has been doing this for 50 years. And I would guess he's probably tired at least of the business aspects of this. Now, he's still going to lead the design team. But what's kind of interesting here is the Focusrite Group has a number of companies, but one of those companies is Novation. So... You might think to yourself, what would a profit sound like with Novation Oxford filters? Or on the other hand, how about a Novation synth with profit filters? So there may be some interesting synergy that goes into that, but this is just the latest acquisition of a legendary company where the founder just wants to cash out. My guest this week is Michael Elsner, who started playing sessions for a multitude of television, album, and film projects, which eventually led to his own music appearing on TV and film as well. 
As a songwriter and composer, his songs have been placed in over 180 individual television series, accounting for over 800 individual episodes. Some of these include American Idol, The Voice, Amish Mafia, Cold Case, Extra, The Sing-Off, The Ellen DeGeneres Show, Hannah Montana, and High School Musical 2. He's also composed music for commercials for Audi, Mazda, Skechers, and Verizon, as well as trailers for Cinderella, Ocean's 8, Narcos, Sneaky Pete, and Better Call Saul. Michael has taken his knowledge and experience of music licensing and created the Master Music Licensing Program, which provides a first-hand look on how to obtain sync placements in film and television. During the interview, we spoke about growing up in Woodstock, making the jump to writing for television, the four-step process to licensing, and much more. I spoke with Michael via Zoom from a studio in Nashville. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell me how you got started in the business. Uh, well, I got started in the business um, up in New York, uh, you know, with a, a, um, a local band that I was in for a number of years back in the mid-90s. Uh, our very first experience in a recording studio was back in 96. And, um, you know, we'd been playing for um, oh, well over a year every weekend at a lot of different clubs locally, saving up money to to be able to go in and record our records. So that was our that was like my first real experience uh, in a studio. And then, um, and then I actually, I ended up moving to Nashville in uh, November of 98. Uh, right when I moved to town, uh, you know, you know, John Yash, sure. uh, John was, was the first person that I met, but I had actually met him uh, about four weeks prior to moving to Nashville. I was out at the AES show in San Francisco and John ended up sitting next to me at a, at a producer's uh, conference uh, you know, um, uh, um, um, let me see who was on that. Uh, Bob Clearmountain was on that. Bob Rock was on that. Bruce Swedeen was on that. So a lot of heavy hitters. And uh, and John sat next to me and he had a tag that said Franklin, Tennessee. And maybe a week or two prior to that, I had just secured an apartment in Franklin, Tennessee, which is, you know, just town just south of Nashville. And so when he sat down, you know, I didn't know anyone in Nashville, but he, uh, he, he lived apparently in the place that I was going to move to. So I started talking to him and, and uh, he gave me his information. And so when I, when I got into town, I got into town on a Saturday, uh, I called him on a Monday and then I met with him shortly thereafter and, and ended up hanging out with him and started meeting people through him. So it was, it was really a, a good introduction. Obviously, you know, you know, John's just a, an unbelievable mix engineer. Yeah. I think he's won seven Grammys. And um, so it was a great, experience to work with him. And then uh, I met uh, um, a guy named Randy Poole, who uh, I believe was was uh, John's assistant when John was living back up in, in Detroit. But then, you know, Randy became a, a first engineer. And so uh, so I just really started hanging out with, with John and Randy because I didn't know anyone. And I'd always go to the studio and just hang out with them. So that's really how my career started, uh, playing in bands and then moving to Nashville and, you know, getting introduced really on a deeper level to the uh, recording environment. And then, uh, you know, from there, I just started working with different songwriters and, and uh, you know, and eventually started producing records myself and then playing with artists and whatnot. So it was, uh, it, I was definitely, you know, I, I never started really, you know, as an intern or anything like that. I just connected with the people that were, that were working at various, you know, levels in the industry and, uh, and, and did that. And then in 2003, I moved out to Los Angeles um, and, uh, I knew that I wanted to get more into uh, session work 
And uh, at that time, I was actually really interested in, in playing guitar uh, for TV shows and films. So when I got out to L.A., I didn't really know anyone when I moved out there, but I connected with some composers. And within just a couple of months, I was playing guitar on the shows that they were working on. So, uh, so that was really my first introduction to Los Angeles and, and the music uh, community there. Okay, wait, let's go back for a second, because I know you grew up in Woodstock. Yeah. And Woodstock has always been a very vital and active musical community. So what was it like growing up in that? So, uh, yeah, you know, the first studio I ever went to was Bearsville Recording Studio, oh, yeah. uh, which I'm sure you know of. Um, Albert Grossman, who was, you know, Bob Dylan's uh, manager, and, and he built that studio. And uh, so there's a long, rich history in Woodstock. You know, I grew up in Woodstock, but uh, at, at the time that I grew up in Woodstock, it wasn't the music community that it was back in the 70s, you know, and, and even the early 80s, you know, with Van Morrison and Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix, obviously, who had passed on by that time. But, uh, but th there was a lot of, you know, artists coming into town to record there. And, you know, it's just an artist colony, an artist commune, in a sense. So, the Hudson Valley is just one of the most beautiful areas, I, I think, in the country. Uh, and there's a certain, um, I think there's an energy there that really drives artists to that region. So, you know, I was always going out, you know, walking through Woodstock in the evenings. There's a place called Tinker Street Cafe, uh, which is pretty well known. Bob Dylan used to live there. Jimi Hendrix lived there at one point in the apartment above it. And even when I wasn't young enough to get into to the bar, I would stand outside. They had all windows on the side. And I would just stand out there with my buddies and we would watch whoever was playing and a lot of the songwriters and, and even some of the bands that were, you know, uh, recording would come down and do little impromptu sets there. So as a teenager, it was definitely a cool place to grow up and kind of be surrounded by a lot of artistic individuals. You said when you came to Los Angeles, you specifically wanted to work with composers to write for television and film. I wanted to play guitar for them, more or less. I, I, I never had, at that time uh, in, in my life, I had no vision of composing for TV at all. Uh, I, I was really focused on, on building my, my guitar career as a guitar player. And, um, you know, working on records in Nashville was, was fun, but I, I just wanted something else. And, uh, and I just, when I really looked at like the music that I listened to and whatnot, all of the music that I just happened to listen to and that inspired me growing up, it all came from, from Los Angeles. So while Nashville was definitely a good place to, you know, get some grounding and get my feet wet with that, I, I ultimately had always wanted to move to LA anyway, ever since I was a teenager. And so I, you know, by the time I'd spent a number of years in Nashville and had really, you know, honed in on, on a bunch of my skill sets, uh, I felt I was actually ready to, to compete in the LA world. So when I got out there, that was already really the beginning of, of things changing in the music industry, you know, mid, middle of 2003. And especially at that point, that was peer-to-peer -peer networks like Kazaa and LimeWire. And, and even at that time, you know, I, I knew I was like, man, everyone, everyone's downloading music. What is, what is this future going to be when it comes to, to that, uh, making records and whatnot? And so, uh, you know, between that and, and, and just my interest in, you know, playing sessions and whatnot, L.A. really called to me and, uh, and spoke to me. And, and, of course, when I got out there, you know, the, I, I started connecting with some editors and people who were already working in TV. And that was just a whole new world. It was exciting to me. So, so I definitely put a focus on working with composers and and working on tv and you know that that was definitely something just as a guitar player though not as a writer by any means 
So how did you make the jump to being a writer and composer? So that was a funny story. I, I was always writing songs. I was always, you know, you know, pursuing a publishing deal for my regular songs and um, always getting turned down. And when I moved out to Los Angeles, I, I, was in, I ended up playing guitar on a TV show. And one day I just asked the music supervisor if I could give her a CD of songs. I was learning more about the fact of how, you know, regular, like independent artists and, and musicians and songwriters I was learning at that time, 2003, 2004, that there was, an, there was actually an outlet for our songs to get on these TV shows. Now, I had no idea about that. Uh, so I thought, you know, every, everything that was written on a show was composed, you know, unless it was a famous song that we knew, of course. So I had no idea that supervisors, I didn't even know those people existed. I had no idea that they were taking songs from independent artists and licensing them. That was news to me. And, uh, and so, yeah, one day I just, I just asked a particular supervisor who I was working with, if I could give her a CD. And she said, yes. And the next day I saw her, I, I gave her a CD. And uh, within two or three weeks, I had a featured placement on, on Cold Case, which was real popular on CBS at the time. And that was my first real introduction to licensing. I thought, wow, this was actually really easy. And so I started taking all the songs that I'd been writing for so many years. And I really started getting them out to these different supervisors. And then of course, I would go out to different events and I'd see her and I'd go up and say hello, and she'd be like, "Oh, Michael, you need to meet so and so." And she introduced me to someone else and say, "Oh, I just, I just used one of Michael's songs on this show." And then I'd get that person's card, and come Monday, I would connect with them and send them some music. And it really just kind of got that ball rolling in in that in that way. Is there something about that that you find maybe more attractive than going the traditional songwriting route? I find it a thousand times more attractive, <laughs> just a, a zillion times more uh, more attractive. Because, you know, I, I went the traditional songwriting route for a long time. And I feel the thing is, is like when you're going that route, you are really trying to hone in on exactly what specific artists are looking for. Right. Uh, when you're when you're getting your songs out there, when you're pitching them to publishers. And, you know, there's a very finite amount of opportunities when it comes to that. You've got an, an artist releasing an album, you know, in a year. So for the next year, they're, you know, getting the songs together and going to go into the studio and and record their record. And so they've got, you know, 10 or 12 slots available and you're competing with thousands and thousands of songwriters for one of those 10 or 12 spots. And of course, then it has to fit a very specific vision that the artist has for the record or maybe the record label or the A&R uh, people who, who they're working with on that record producers and whatnot. Uh, when it comes to uh, TV, gosh, the, the variety of music is all over the map. Right. You can watch one show that takes place in the 1940s and the 1950s. Well, all that music is going to have that type of sound to it. The very next show could, you know, take place in the you know, 2000s, but there might be some some flashback scenes to the 1980s. Well, maybe they can't afford a Duran Duran song or a Madonna song for the 1985 scene, you know, or flashback. So they find a piece of music that fits that that's that's not going to cost as much. Well, that gives us as independent artists a wide variety of opportunities to get our music out there and to get it placed and to, to generate cash from it without having to worry that, you know, is this song good enough for Beyonce's next record? And, and, you know, stylistically, like I said, there's such a wide variety of, of genres that are used on all the TV shows and all the films that are coming out. And on top of that, you got to think of the commercials. So, you know, when I was going the, you know, the, the, the traditional, we'll call it the traditional music industry path, you know, you're really boxed in. I, I definitely feel this way. I feel like you're definitely boxed in. You're writing within certain 
boundaries in order for your song to end up on radio. But the reality is that if you listen to a lot of shows, or just, just pick any show, uh, you could listen to the music. Maybe there's a particular song during a very specific scene. Uh, you could listen to that song and you could think, my gosh, that song will never be on the radio. It just doesn't have that radio thing, but yet it fits that scene perfectly. And so for me, it was such a welcome change, you know, after, after having pitched my songs to publishers for so many years and just constantly getting turned down and turned down, but then to go this route and have literally all the doors swing open. And, and that to me has been so fulfilling. Uh, I feel like in the music industry, everyone's favorite word is no. I feel like in the licensing industry or in the TV film industry, everyone's fa favorite word is, you know, let, let me hear what you have. Maybe it's their favorite phrase. It's not necessarily yes, because you have to keep in mind that those people who are licensing the song, they still have to answer to, you know, a producer or a director, a production company, right? But they still want to hear what you have to see if it's, if it's something that they can work with, either with what they're working on now or maybe something that's coming up in, in the future for them. So I feel like those doors are always, always opening. Now, isn't it true, though, that there's so many more artists, bands, musicians that are hip to this than there used to be, especially like back when you started, that the competition is far greater than what it used to be? The the, yeah, obviously licensing has become recognized as an outlet that musicians can, you know, uh, make you know good income from you know, because obviously you know we all know what's happened with uh, with uh, the traditional music industry pursuit you know, album sales have all gone down and whatnot uh, you know across all the streaming platforms if you average them out it's it, it takes 225 streams to earn one dollar uh, whereas you know obviously with a license you know musicians know that you know they can make hundreds thousands you know of dollars uh, with just one song license the flip side of that is while Every musician, I feel, recognizes the value in licensing. The reality is that I've seen a lot of musicians, I'd say the vast majority of them, approach licensing the exact same way they approach the traditional music industry path in that, you know, which I just look at as a two-step process. You finish your song and then you send it out and you expect your end users to figure out whether or not they like it or not, right? Uh, well, that process does not translate to the licensing world. The way that I see this and, and the way that I, I've you know, approached my whole, my whole business the last, uh, I guess we're coming up to 17 years now, is, is uh, as a four-step process. So while a lot of musicians recognize that there's value in it, I see a lot of musicians not having success with it because they're using the exact same approach when it comes to sending their music out to supervisors or music editors or music libraries. They're packaging up their song, they're sending it out, and then they're ex just expecting them to listen to it and figure out what to do with it. And that's just not the way that they're going to find success. There's, there's a whole other path that we can follow that delivers extreme value to these end users so that our, you know, our goal really is to serve them with our music you know, so that, so that they, their, their job can be made as easy as possible uh, when it comes to searching, auditioning, and then you know, licensing the songs. And I, that is the key element that I find that a lot of musicians leave out of that process. And then they walk away from this pursuit frustrated that nothing happened for them. Isn't it true also that if you're a songwriter and you expect your songs to be placed, it's one level, but the other level is if you're approaching it as a composer, it's completely different. So you're doing it from a library level. Uh, libraries, libraries have changed a lot from what they were, 
even when I started with this back in you know 2004, uh, libraries were were viewed completely differently. When I started, I would give my music directly to supervisors, and I would connect connect with them you know directly. At this point now, you know, uh, I was talking to a music supervisor friend of mine last week, and he he let me in on this number. There's like over 550,000 independent uh, uh, record labels, publishers, artists, and whatnot who are constantly trying to get their music in front of music supervisors. So obviously, as you can understand, you know, their emails are blown up. The problem also with this is that, you know, if a music supervisor licenses a song, we'll say from artist A, and artist A was using a sample from some particular artist, you know, a lot, a lot of musicians don't really understand, fully understand copyright. They don't really understand that maybe they can't actually use that particular sample that they got. And by sample, I mean like maybe they took like a, a a one bar phrase from like, you know, the intro of a particular song that they like and they put it underneath a bunch of other stuff in their track. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's still a sample. They they don't have the rights to that. And so if a music supervisor were to license that and then that were to, you know, get maybe the, the owner, maybe it's the record label, the publisher, whoever the owner of that uh, would be. If they were to recognize that and then approach the the music supervisor, well, now the music supervisor's on the hook for that, especially as this has become such a popular thing. So a lot of music supervisors actually even work through libraries, specifically really for the insurance aspect and the legal aspect of it. You know, libraries are really publishers now and and even artists. You know, there there are a lot of libraries that that are fully vocal, you know, just vocal song libraries. Uh, they, they represent uh, the music catalogs of a lot of independent artists and even some well-known artists. So the whole music library thing is not what it was even 15 years ago. Uh, it's become a pretty massive industry in and of itself. And it's also very beneficial for an independent artist, you know, if they're not going after the record deal, to get their record represented by a library because the record because the library is is not a record label. It allows the artist to to still do whatever they want with that record, uh, that library is just representing those songs for song placements, uh, as opposed to a, an artist signing a deal with a you know, re- with a record label, who then of course owns a whole you know plethora more rights than what a library would have when they're representing a, a, a batch of songs or an album's worth of songs for a very specific amount of time. So you teach people how to do this, and what is it master music licensing that, that you have? Yeah, and I su- I suppose. You talked about it's a four-step process, so that I would imagine you hit people to what that process is. Yeah, so you know, with 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 licensing, when again, it, it's it's all about serving our end user, and so you know, I, I really try and emphasize a bit of a mindset shift when it comes to how we look at our music. You know, a lot of musicians are, hey, use my music so I can make some money, right? That's really. The, the underlying tone of how a lot of musicians approach their career. I need to get my songs out there so I can make some money, right? But when you shift your mindset to how can I serve these people? How can I serve this music supervisor? There's a particular show that, I'm, that I watch. I'm a big fan of. They use a lot of music exactly like what I have. How can I serve that music supervisor with my songs, right? And when we approach it from that perspective, we're really being a valuable service to these individuals who, you know, Another thing to keep in mind when it when it comes to song placements is that music is one of the very last things that gets added to a show or a film in post-production. All the delays that happened on the front end get made up on the back end. And a supervisor's job is really to clear the rights for that for the you know for the particular song. 
they have to secure the master rights and the sync rights for uh, that song placement. So that's really what their job is. And if we can supply them with music that makes it as easy as possible for them to find the right song, audition it very quickly, and then secure the rights very quickly, then, then we've opened up a, a great door for people to start working with us repetitively. Now, when it comes to you know, my process, a lot of musicians, the very first question they have is, I just need to know who, who to send my music to. Mm. Well, that's kind of getting back to, the, to what I refer to as the two-step process. Finish your song and send it out. They finish their song. Now they're just looking at who they can send it out to. And the reason why this doesn't work is because it doesn't actually serve those end users. And here's why. When it comes to TV, what are TV shows mixed in? They're mixed in surround, right? 5.1, 7.1. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Okay, the other thing is that there are multiple people further down the chain that are going to utilize our song and, and, and you know, address it in different ways. A music editor would be one. A re-recording mixer would be the other. These are the individuals who are part of every, every, every film production, every TV show, right? So, so when we deliver our music, the first thing it's going to hit is, is a music editor. They're going to place the song in there you know, so that it fits under the dialogue. And a lot of times they might need multiple versions of the song. Maybe there's a specific moment in, 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 in the scene where they don't want the full mix. Maybe they don't want the vocals. Maybe they don't want all the instrumentation. Well, being able to deliver, you know, a, a we'll say like a stripped down mix or an acoustic mix or stems is extremely beneficial for them because then at that other very prominent moment, then they can crossfade into the full version or the vocal version or whatever it is because they're helping tell, you know, that story. They're using music to help tell that story. So the second part of my process, the first part of my process is to just, you know, write the music. I call it building your catalog, right? Write freely without any boundaries because we're not, you know, playing this whole music industry game of, of being boxed in. So write the music that you're passionate about writing. When you write music that's authentic to you, that authenticity is going to come across even more when it's married to picture. So that's the first step. The second step is as you come out of the mixing phase, after you do your full mix, you're automatically in step two. I call it creating the valuable content. These are all the versions and stems that you're going to deliver to your end users. Your end users being really the music editor and the uh, re-recording mixer. Now, all this is going to go through a music supervisor who's going to secure the placement, but ultimately the real people who are going to be addressing our music or dressing it up, so to speak, even would be the uh, music editor and the re-recording mixer. So step two of my process is to create that valuable content. Step three, of course, then is the metadata. When you send music to someone and, you know, we've all gotten WAV files from our friends, you know, and we import it into iTunes and it just sits there with, you know, maybe the song title and the artist. Um, but metadata is the information that gets added to the audio file so that an editor or a music supervisor or whoever's, you know, looking for a particular piece of music for a scene, they can type in very specific keywords that, uh, that describe what they're looking for. And you got to keep in mind also in the TV world, you know, people don't describe music the way that a lot of, you know, musicians would. A director might not describe a song the way that we as musicians would. So, so the metadata are the, it's the very specific keywords that are added to that audio file. Maybe a director, you know, during, during a spotting session is saying, you know, I really want something that's, uh, I want a female vocal track here, but I kind of want it to be like a female version of John Mayer. And I want to make sure that it has ukulele in it. I mean, you know, that's what the director might might say. And I want it to be like a mid-tempo and, and it has to be about, you know, a particular subject, you know, has to be about love, whatever, or love lost, whatever. Well, now a supervisor's job or an editor's job is to go find a piece of music like that 
And so they're going to type in very specific keywords. And oftentimes they're looking through hundreds of thousands of songs. So just like you would, if you open up iTunes and you want to find, you know, if you want to find a particular song that's in your iTunes catalog, if you have a big iTunes catalog on your computer, uh, you know, you, you would either scroll all the way down and find the song, or a lot of us would just go into the search bar and we would type in the title of the song. Boom, that's going to pop up. But metadata is going to be much more involved because they're going to use specific keywords. Maybe they will use female vocal, ukulele, you know, love, uh, you know, uh, whatever, you know, Adele. Maybe they're looking something in the style of Adele. Who knows? That's the metadata that has to be added to the audio file before we even send it in. So the third step of the process is the metadata. And then the fourth step of the process is really targeting our end users. The worst thing that you can do is just blast your music out. No one likes to be blasted, right? It's very Star Wars-ish. No one likes to be blasted. If a music supervisor is working on a show and all they're looking for is R&B and that's all they're using right now, and you're sending them you know, your, your, your female singer-songwriter tracks, it's irrelevant to them. So... Uh, you know, you really want to target, and of course, you're never, you're not going to get a response, you know, and then you're going to walk away frustrated. Oh, they never, they never got back to me. Of course not. They, they're under a timeline, you know, and and uh, and this, the music that you sent them was irrelevant because you didn't do the research to really find out what they're looking for, and you weren't targeting them specifically based on on what they need. So really, that's the four step process. You know, very thirty thousand foot view of it, but. But when you implement it, the nice thing about it is it's like a feedback loop. You take one song through all four steps. Then you go back to step one and you take your next song through all four steps. And every single song goes through those four steps repetitively. And the nice thing is, is that it literally is a sequence. You know, you know exactly where you are in the sequence. That's pretty cool. It also seems like it takes some time. Uh, it, it can take time. Uh, I mean, burning out mixes doesn't take a lot of time. Uh, the metadata, as you get better at metadata, as you fully understand it, you know, adding metadata to a song, full thorough metadata, that take you about 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. Um, personally, I actually mixed, I still am a Pro Tools user. I still mix everything down in, in real time. Uh, I don't do off, um, you know, I, 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 I bounce everything down in real time. I don't do offline bounces. I do that for a couple of reasons. First, I, I always want to make sure everything that I bounce comes down, you know, comes out fine, right? Even when I'm creating different versions and you're muting different instrument groups and whatnot, stems or whatnot, you never know when something else might pop in there. Uh, so I definitely listen down. The other reason why I listen down, even the more, I, I think more of a more important reason why I listen down to everything is while it's burning down, that's when I'm totally in metadata mode. I'm listening to the song over and over and over. I have a bunch of little cheat sheets that I have, you know, with all these, you know, 750 plus adjectives and stuff like that. And I, I just scroll through them and, and every time a word hits me, I, I type it in there as a keyword. Obviously, I dissect it. You know, what is was the instrumentation? What's the tempo? Blah, blah, blah. Um, what's the genre? And I, even a description and all that kind of stuff. And so the metadata is extremely thorough. But while the tracks are bouncing down, you're literally knocking out steps two and three at one time. Now, going into step four, which is, you know, targeting your end users. Yeah, that that can definitely take time. Uh, but the the funny thing is it doesn't take nearly the amount of time that it used to because there's websites like imdb.com, there's tunefind.com that within, you know, two or three or four minutes, you can find all the shows that are using music along the lines of what you have, especially if you're comparing it to a very specific artist. Uh, and then from there, then you can find exactly who the music supervisors are. Yeah, from that point on, you know, you got to do some creative Googling and find their website or find their email. And then, of course, you know, uh, 
take take some time to to uh, you know put together a nice email and, and and approach them in a in a service oriented value oriented way, but it doesn't take a lot of time. Uh, it's it's not like days and days and days and days and days of, of your life to do this. Now speaking of mixes, I have a, a good friend who is very successful with he has over fourteen thousand cues. Wow. And I think he's on a hundred and thirty some series now worldwide. So he, he's done really well. And he's a great mixer. He was a mixer before he, he got into this. And his theory is he makes his mixes as loud as possible. He claims that they jump out for every supervisor, and he, he claims that that's why I get a lot of work, because I'm just louder than everybody else. Where do you come down on that? I, I, I don't agree with that, because I, I've, uh, I'm, I'm at over 180 different uh, television series at this point in my career, and I do not mix loud. Well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I, I definitely mix up there, but when I think of someone saying like like they mix loud, my production brain starts thinking heavy mastering and like just a brick of you know two by four of audio. Yeah. And so while your mix can sit loud as far as like peak levels, I don't over compress at all. In fact, I don't really even a- approach. A, you know, a lot of people will approach their mixing process like a mixing and mastering process. I definitely don't, uh, simply because. I like to give the re-recording mixer uh, more options, and as far as like let them let them tweak it however they need. If they need to compress it, it's a lot easier to compress something more than it is to uncompress it, right? But in my experience, having spent time out in LA, having known editors, having sat in an edit bay with them, uh, that's not the experience I've had. Uh, a lot of times, the editors that I've worked with, uh, you know, they'll 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 narrow a search down, maybe ten or twelve tracks. They'll have the scene up and they literally will just grab the song and pull it in. And the reality is the very first thing that happens when they pull the audio in is they bring it down in level because it has to sit underneath all the dialogue, all the sound design. Uh, and so that's not been my experience. Um, but, you know, it, everyone has different experiences when it comes. I think the reason why I've had the success that I've had with with my licenses is not because of any levels. It's because of the metadata. I feel that the reason why is I show up in a lot of searches. I try and get my metadata so thorough that I show up in every relevant search as often as I can so that I'm always in the running for a placement. What would you say for you is the most difficult thing in the process? The the thing that I, as far as the production process, yeah. is that what you mean? Yeah. Uh, my, my least favorite is mixing. Hmm. I mix it. I mix as I go. As, as best I can, but I really enjoy playing and creating. And, uh, and the mix process, I feel like I, I always have the fun and the m- momentum of playing and creating and laying down guitar parts and, you know, playing whatever. I, I, I enjoy that so much that when it comes to the, 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 you know, maybe like the final, you know, hour or two or whatever, depending on the, the, how, how involved the track is, some tracks don't take hardly any time to mix. Well, let's say it's a vocal song, you know, and it's going to take, you know, a couple hours to mix that track. Uh, I just feel like at that point, I'm just sitting. <laughs> and um, as opposed to, you know, when I'm in creation mode and I'm getting up and I'm grabbing guitars, I'm playing with different pedals, I'm tweaking sounds. I feel like I like that activity of creating music as opposed to sitting and just moving my mouse. Yeah. So I don't hate mixing. I just don't like it as much as the rest of the process. Yeah, it's funny. Some people really like that the best. 
Yeah. And they feel they're, they're most creative at it. And yet, yeah, well, teach his own. You know, it depends on how you feel about production. For me, like in, in production, it was always, I love tracking. It was always the most fun. And overdubs were, was just something that's like, oh, how long is this going to take? <laughs> yeah. I, I feel that like tracking to me, because that, that's kind of the, the same thing. The creative tracking part to me is just a lot of fun. Now, granted, I, I, you know, I work a lot on, on my own, so I'm always just, you know, really tracking is just overdubbing for me. But um, yeah, I, I agree. I just, I like there's I like that intensity and there's a whole part of your brain that I feel is just really locked in when you're, when you're in the zone of creating. And then for me, when it comes to mixing, it becomes analytical. And so a whole thing switches and I just don't enjoy that as much, mm. uh, especially coming right off of the, the creative aspect of it, where it's just, you know, what, what can I throw in? What, what ideas do I have? Okay, Michael, last question. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. What is the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Best piece of business advice that I learned along the way was to learn publishing. Hands down, I think a lot of people think musicians as a whole are not the wisest group of people, maybe, you know, we'll put it that way. And, uh, and, and I think that, you know, even growing up around musicians and, and, and starting my, my career, the thing that blew me away the most was when I was working with successful people, how smart they were and how knowledgeable about the business they were. Uh, producers that I was working with in Nashville, a lot of musicians that I was working with in Nashville. And then when I got out to LA and I started working with composers, how knowledgeable they were about publishing. And ultimately, everything in music, when it comes to creating a song, comes back to publishing and everything that surrounds publishing, you know, the ownership aspect of it, really looking at music as, as an asset. Every song that you write really is a business asset. But the core of how we can monetize that song comes down to understanding publishing. And when you understand publishing, I think to, to a pretty deep degree, uh, you suddenly see all the ways that you can take this asset, this song that just really doesn't exist in really any tangible form, but how you can take the song and monetize it in a plethora of different ways. Also, when it comes to especially if you're going to represent your own songs and, and get your songs placed and whatnot, you have to understand publishing. Licensing is 100% publishing. You know, licensing is basically, the business model of licensing is just like real estate, right? Hmm. When you sell a house, you're selling a piece of property. Well, with a song licensing, you're not selling anything. You're simply granting the right to another individual or company to take your intellectual property and synchronize it with their intellectual property. And it all comes down to understanding publishing. So I think that that is the most important thing that to me was a game changer in my career when I really decided that I was going to sit down and I was going to you know, get a bunch of books on publishing and really learn how this stuff worked. You can find out more about Michael at michaelelsner.com. That's Michael, E-L-S-N-E-R, michaelelsner, all one word, dot com. You can also find out about his Master Music Licensing course at mastermusiclicensing, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, 
or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>